Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And we're still in stage four lockdown um, in Victoria, or in Melbourne, really, and parts of the regional areas as well. And I'm doing the show remotely from home. And just a warning that there will be audio images today on the show in regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have died. And first up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Leanne Carter, and she's from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Listeners may recall that last uh, last week, I believe, we had a, an interview with Leanne about the legal challenge launched to secure fair access to the age pension for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that particular media release was put out by the Human Rights Law Centre and, um, and was in partnership, I believe, with various other organisations. Leanne Carter is the statewide community justice program's leader and we'll be speaking with her about the Deaths in Custody Notification Service. And we'll speak with her about the history and what happened and, and why was that service born. And we'll speak to her also about prisons and looking at, um, at the coronavirus and also isolation and Leanne is a Noongar woman, and she's um, and we'll speak to her about what, what any other land that she's from later when she gives her introduction. And she's worked also at, at um, the ALS since 2011 and is at the Statewide Community Justice Program leader, as I said. And in this role, she manages such community programs as the Vales Custody Notification Service, which we'll be talking about soon, and also an Aboriginal Women's Trans Transitional Housing Program as well. So we'll be speaking to, to Leanne first, and then later on we'll speak with David Glantz, who is from the Refugee Action Collective, and we'll speak with David about an outrageous move by Victoria Police who banned the right to picnic for a political purpose at the last minute. And we understand, of course, that there are health orders in place. And actually, in 2020, the Doing Time show actually conducted an interview with various lawyers in regards to the Charter of Human Rights and being able to balance out this pandemic and health crisis with the right to protest. So we'll speak with David about what happened there and, and we'll look at that later. But first up, and very shortly, we'll be speaking with Leanne. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. 
You know, it's how you love your family. It's how you care about your cousins. And it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. you're back with the Doing Time show and we're speaking now with Leanne Carter. Hello Leanne, welcome to the program. Thank you and thanks for having me on today. It's so lovely to have you. We'll speak about all the the terminology in regards to the the custody notification service in a sec but first of all, even though you're only on just recently and we're doing a follow-up, could you just tell listeners what land you're from in case we've got new people that have tuned in? Sure, so I'm Riradri and Noongar. That's it. I couldn't remember the other <laughs> land, <laughs> the other land we were from. But it's. I always like to have um, elders and and also Aboriginal um, workers introduce themselves because I think that's better. Yeah, and I mean you do get it right. So I have been at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service for over ten years this yep. year, and I'm currently the statewide community justice programs leader and. As you mentioned, some of the programs that come under the area that I manage are our community legal education, our Bagarook, our women's um, transitional property. Uh, We've got a family violence um, CSO program. We've got a regional CSO program. And we've got our Aboriginal community justice panels. And we've also got... Oh. We've got got a few programs going on at the moment, so it's been exceptionally busy. Well, that's fantastic, and and I know that a lot of those programs would be under-resourced, but it is refreshing to see that in Victoria there's quite a growing growing, um, interest, isn't there, and importance to, to get that happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a bit of a battle, obviously, for resourcing and funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, Val's in the last budget did not get the funding. You know, we were hoping to roll out our community hubs, which, as we know, it's so important to have the services locally so people can connect with the workers. And I suppose it's a benefit of having regional workers, but the numbers of people in custody have not slowed down. Uh, particularly for our client notification program. Absolutely. Okay, so let's start off then, because we've got quite a bit to talk about. As you would be aware, and I, I think that um, that you've also there's been a podcast about this on YouTube. But the 15th of April this year marks um, how many? 30 years since the Royal yes. Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Yes, that's right. Which handed down its final report on April 15th. 1991, and and the report made 339 recommendations, didn't they? How many people would you say um, have died in custody to date? Goodness, the numbers, um, unfortunately, recently have also gone up as well. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so we know that, um, you know, out of... Out of those recommendations, you know, there's there's a lot that's still outstanding and... Um, you know, one of the one of the focuses that we've been focusing on is obviously those in custody, and you know, reducing the numbers in that. Um, more recently, I think there has been um, other deaths in custody. Um, yes. You know, and I know there was um, unfortunately a recent, you know, a recent one as well. Absolutely. So, can you talk about the history of the custody notification service and how it works? Yeah, sure. So the custody notification system came about as a result of the recommendations. And we know that, um, you know, um, out of those, I think it was around 474 deaths, you know, that we've seen inside, you know, custody so far, we, you know, the commission recommended that, you know, um, one of the things was to ensure that there was holistic checks, you know, the basic things, you know, people could have um, access to legal services, but, you know, culturally appropriate and holistic legal services and support. So as a recommendation of that, given the number of incarceration rates, 
that's how our client notification system came about because we knew that a lot of the deaths were specifically related to poor health and housing and, you know, all these other issues that we know exist. And, you know, the government's got in their minds are closing the gap, but they're not necessarily closing that gap, which continues to have an impact. So the client notification system came out of those recommendations to ensure that there was some... Um, how would you put it, safety factors and measures that were put in place. But it's also around accountability and checks in as well, particularly with police. If we're calling them, they're aware we're calling them. They're more likely to follow the right process, or at least you'd hope they'd follow the right process. Absolutely. But, in fact, not all police understand their responsibilities in making notifications and relationship between police and Aboriginal communities means sometimes that mob don't want to identify themselves to police. Um, what do you think about that when I they go into custody? I think that's perfectly okay, but what concerns me is if someone has mental health issues or they're really, really unwell, and where the police have dealt with that person before, there is no reason not to pick up the phone or no reason not to put them on their system and identify them to ensure that we know so we can do our welfare checks, so we can check in. Even if they don't want to speak with us, we still do our welfare checks on someone in custody, even if they refuse to speak with us, just to make sure they're safe. And sometimes people change their mind, you know what I mean, yeah. when they're in there. But a big issue that we had for a period of time was that people weren't getting put on the system because police would say, oh, well, they don't look black. And it's like, sorry? what's the black fella look like, you know? Oh. Uh, and we had another officer last year question somebody's Aboriginality, said, who's your mob, where are you from? Now, you know, as we say, that's certainly not your job to do that. That's not your role. That's not your position. It's not your position as a black police officer to ask someone or to question someone if they do identify. But for those that choose not to, that's their right. But, you know, we would encourage everyone to ensure that they did identify when they go through every one of our mobs so we know that they're in there, so we can check up, so we can contact their family, so we can let their partners know or, you know, mum or dad or uncle or whoever it is know where they are because then we get family ringing, stressed out, not knowing where people are. That's true, Leanne. And, in fact, just to clarify, I believe that, the, the notification service happened because of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, even though a lot of the recommendations haven't been implemented and there's been very little change. It, yep. it, it happened because of that, didn't it, because of the, the history. Can you talk a little bit? How was it actually born? What happened? Well, the, the history came about as a result, as I said, of the Royal Commission. Yes. And as we know, you know, when they were doing... When they were going through the Royal Commission, they found that a lot of the rights of people's access, like as I said, to health, people not getting proper health and dying as a result of it, people, you know, being mistreated in the in custody, which we know happens. And, you know, so some of those key drivers, the social and economic issues, as we know, poverty, poverty is one of the biggest issues and the biggest drivers for over-incarceration rates, right? So, you know, the Royal Commission, when they were looking at it, found that the rates were so high of death in custody. But what they did find also was that they were directly related to all those issues, the housing, the employment, you know, the discrimination, the racism, you know, all of those things that we know had taken place. And that's where they said, you know, that's where our mob, you know, are more disadvantaged in a much more, you know, unequal position in a wider society, particularly when we're placed in the police cell. And often police that, you know, often the community say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's a black fellow issue. No, it's not a black fellow issue. No, it's not our mob issue. It's a community issue. It's a social issue. You know, and when... So, we, you know, when you, we talk about a, a custody notification service, does that does that mean it would just be... Um, mob going into police cells, or would it also be extended to prisons as well? No. See, so before before anyone goes 
you know, unless someone's sentenced directly when they go into court, let's say, and they're not in police custody first, so if someone just goes into court expecting to walk out that day and all of a sudden the magistrate decides that they're going to remand them, you know what I mean, yeah. or send them off to prison, and that's oh, different. Okay. But generally, we, we will know. We will know if they've been put on the system right, if they've been asked the question, which, are, you know, the police are required to ask people, are you Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? As soon as someone identifies and they press that button and put all their information in, we get notified. And it's at that point that we start making our welfare checks on that person in custody at that time. I get so, it. Yeah. Yep. So if it's a prison, we'd already know if they're in police custody. You know what I mean? And as you were saying earlier about how police, if someone doesn't look Aboriginal, then they don't want to put them on the list, which I think is... is that's not the way to, to handle a situation, is it, really? No. And it's a conversation that both myself and my staff have had with police when they've questioned someone's Aboriginality. And we say, look, we've got our own processes. Our mob have got our own processes. Our organisations, you know, got their own process for doing the confirmation. If someone identifies and it turns out they're not one of our mob, then so be it. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, but it's certainly not up to police to actually question someone's Aboriginality. And what what concerns me about that is too is that we we've got we've got community members that are from the stolen generation, right? And we've got another generation of kids that are being removed from their families. Now, a lot of these people are disconnected from their culture and from their community. So even though they may know, you know, I'm Aboriginal, they may not know particularly where their mob's from. You know what I mean? Or they may be disconnected from their mob. So, you know, can you imagine how awkward that would be having, you know, a white fella in a, in a yeah. police station question you, you know, like that, you know, it's, it's not yeah. just a shame, but it, it carries a lot of things with that as well. No, it's, it's important. And I hope you don't mind me asking these questions because it is important that, I mean, we, I, I'm hoping that there are listeners um, and there are there will be Aboriginal people listening, I'm sure, um, yeah. for, because the Doing Time show actually reaches out to a lot of um, Aboriginal communities and we actually interview a lot of families um, where Aboriginal people have died in custody. And I hope that never happens again to those families. But what I'm saying is it is always good to, to get information about the notification service. So really yeah. um, you all act as a bridge then between the Aboriginal person and the police to do the welfare check to make sure that that person's safe. Absolutely. So we've completely, you know, overhauled and added a lot more risk factors in, you know, um, after the coroner's recommendations as well and, you know, after Aunty Tanya Day. Yeah, tell and, us about that. Well, as, you know, many people would know and much respect and thoughts with the family who have, you know, continued to fight the battle around the public drunkenness and, you know, just about the treatment and custody. One of one of the things, you know, that obviously came out of it was around the risks that people present with and, you know, and we know that, you know, Aunty Tanya was just travelling home on a train and she got pulled off and things, you know, went very rapidly and then she ended up in a police cell and, you know, and was not properly cared for within the police cell. And for anyone that's seen that footage, it's, you know, it's horrific and I, I honestly can't imagine as a family member Having, having to see that footage of a loved one in custody and being treated like that. So we've added a lot of extra parts within our welfare checks to ensure that every sort of aspect that we can cover is a risk is taken into account. So, you know, when, when someone comes in and, you know, we ask if, you know, can we speak to the person, let's, let's say we get that person on the phone, right, and then, you know, we, we ask them how they are. You know, how they're feeling. Do they know why they're there? You know, do they have any injuries? And if they've got injuries, we find out when the injuries occurred, whether it was during the arrest or, you know, when they're in the cell. Um, you know, we find out if they're substance affected or alcohol affected. And, you know, we'll ask them if they've got any mental health or depression or anxiety. And if they do, you know, are they on any medications and that? And, you know, and then 
the other things we look at, we look at whether or not that person's got disability because we know if someone's got mobility disability or struggle with their legs, they might be more prone to fall over in a cell or they might be asthmatic and need their spray, you know what I mean? And so those risks weren't put in before? No, most of those risks were, but the slip and the fall risks are so, so crucial around that, you know what I mean? And one of the things is, is that we shouldn't be having people who are drunk places in police cells anyway, as we know. You and know, in fact, Leanne... Because it's highest, highest risk. Absolutely. I agree with you. And in fact, you would have heard, of course, that the Victorian Parliament is set to decriminalise public drunkenness. Yep. And, and that was actually yep. a recommendation of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yep. Yep. But the fight... The fight that came through there, um, you know, have been many, many organisations, but also Annie Tanya Day's family that have just pushed that because what we see too often is people getting locked up for really minor offences. So whether it's silly string, young kids spraying silly string on a building or someone knocking food off because they're hungry or something like that or, you know, these really low-level sort of types of offences that are causing people to get locked up and then remanded and remanded for a period of time and they're not sentenced yet. And, you know, as I said, things haven't slowed down and if anything, you know, moving people from regional areas has been a bit of an issue, I know, for corrections mobs a bit over this period of time because of isolation rules and that. But I went to do a welfare check. I jumped online for one of my staff and went to do a welfare check on someone and I thought, geez, this fellow's locked. This is his 11th day he's been in this police station. What's going on when they're going to move him, right? So when I actually went in, I looked at the number of welfare checks that had been done on this over that period of time by my staff. I was doing a 74th welfare check, 74th. We'd done, up to that point, 73 welfare checks on that solar in custody. Wow. Up to that, up to that stage. And, and, and when, did you find out anything coherent? Sorry? Did the police answer questions? No. I mean, as far as they were concerned, they couldn't move this fellow from the regional area down to Melbourne. You know, at that time, they had to wait um, for him to be put on the bus and his name hadn't gone up on the bus and, you know, things like that. But during that time, it doesn't matter if nothing's going on with that person in custody, right? We could ring up and be told that someone's having, oh, yeah, they just had their Milo tea, now they're having a nap, now they're sleeping, whatever, now they're okay, no issues, no welfare issues, right? But then the next time you ring up to check, you know, they could have been carted off the hospital because we know things in custody changed so, so rapidly. And we had a young fella and the police officer was saying, oh, no, he's he's banging his head to get attention. Well, about half an hour later, that young fella was carted off in the hospital, you know, up by ambulance Victoria up to the hospital because he you know, hit his head. See, this this is very difficult, isn't it? I mean, the, what you've just described is of someone being, um, you know, in custody for an extended period of time and being a- Aboriginal. And then you going back to Aunty Tanya, you know, the fact is that the, the police, um, they, they went, I, I attended that, that almost that whole inquest. And one of the things that, that came out for me, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that the police um, did not check on on Auntie Tanya regularly and she had the fall. And the notification service, I don't think, was properly informed of all this. No, precisely. And that's where, where, um, you know, let's say someone's sleeping, right, in their Mm. cell. Let's say someone doesn't, doesn't want a yarn with us, right, when we ring up for a check. Now... You know, what's happened in the past is the police have said, oh, yeah, you know, I've checked on them, did the check, no behavioural, they've had their dinner, you know, they're just settling in, right? Now, what we've done now is we've just gone, no, nah, no, we're not we're not accepting that. If that person doesn't want to speak to us, get your, get a portable phone, take the portable phone oh. to their phone, you know what I mean? And let yeah. them tell us, let us hear that for ourselves, you know. They won't I mean? do it, will they? No, they have. In some stations, they have. They have good. They're trying to get it done. And, you know, this is this is the thing. You can tell some really, really good stations, right, that know their stuff, but that goes down to the manager and their training. You know what I mean? And that training, we would argue, has to be ongoing and it has to be regular. You know what I mean? Because Absolutely. you work in one area, 
you might work in a metro police station, but then if you go to a regional or a rural area, that don't mean your community issues are the same. And you're talking about Victoria here, right? Yeah, absolutely. But this this program, like this notification service, is absolutely crucial right across Australia. Yeah, north to south, every state, every state. I don't, I'm not sure if every state has one. I, I think WA has. And WA have. See, this is this is one a big difference. Um, they have what's called a support person, right? So if someone's got mental health issues or an acquired brain injury or, you know, a cognitive impairment of thought, right? The police aren't allowed to interview them without having what's called an independent third person, all right? Mm-hmm. So they've got to get an independent third person to come in and make sure that that person understands the process and the procedures, right? And we make sure that police do that. We make sure police aren't sneaky and try and get someone in the interview room first. And if we know that person's got a disability... We make sure police understand that they've got disability and they need to get an ITP in, all right? And that's, that's the importance of this program. But, like, I think in Western Australia, they've got, like, a support person. So I think that actually benefits them followers over there. Very family. much. And ITP, like, uh, Absolutely. Now, COVID has increased the caseload for the custody notification service, hasn't it? Because of people yeah. coming into custody with more complex needs due to mental mm-hmm. health. Yes, our numbers have not slowed down. On an average, um, you know, just a few days ago when I was looking at some of our data, it was around 3,000 for about um, three months and it averaged out to about 32 a day. But you've got to think, at any given time, we could have, you know, welfare checks that we're doing on between 15 and 22 people already, right? And when you think that the numbers are averaging out to 32 a day, um, of people coming in, so it's, it's enormous. And what we are seeing is even people without mental health issues are really, really struggling, but those that have mental health issues, it's just exasperated. You know, they're coming in and they're really struggling more than what they normally would. But this is outrageous that people are being placed into custody because of, for example, mental health issues or financial impacts from the pandemic. Find the person a home or a house or, uh, you know, link them up with the program. What are you going to throw them into custody for? What does that prove? And the other thing is think about think about when um, someone tests positive to COVID but then they still choose to actually remand that person or that young person despite the fact that they know and then, then that person's then going to send a period of time in isolation, which we know when someone's locked down in isolation, is worse on their mental health. They get very little time. There's very few programs running because of the restrictions already within, you know, within prisons, let alone being in lockdown for, you know, that 14-day period or however long they have to do once they hit the prison system as well. Absolutely. And, in fact, I mean, one of the things that we've been covering on the show as well, Leanne, is that prisons have been using isolation to manage... COVID infections and isolation has got a huge health impact on people in prison. Yes. Yep. I mean, you know, we, we do know that isolation is generally used for people with uh, behavioural issues, which are questionable when you get someone with a comorbid, you know, with someone that might have mental health and a disability or, you know, is highly anxious or, you know. So we know they're used for those reasons, but we also know that they can be used to actually um, keep people safe at times. But when you've got someone that's significantly vulnerable and you're placing that person in isolation, in lockdown... Um, you without know, loved ones? Correct. Without loved ones, you know, with very minimal contact, um, it can be extremely traumatic, as we know. Leanne, I hope you haven't found it too daunting. I, I hope I haven't throwing too many questions at you today? No, not at all. And I, I just think, you know, if we can just encourage people, as I say, you know, when they do, if they've got family, if they know someone's been picked up, just to encourage that person also, you know, to identify because it is absolutely crucial for us to be able to know that they're in there and that, you know, we are keeping checks on our end because we document everything, which obviously, you know, if... There's potentially a police complaint or, you know, an investigation down the track, then, you know, we keep all of our notes and all of our, you know, everything that we're told is well within our records. 
well, it's really, really important. And as you were saying before, this program is a bridge. And, you know, so if we get someone in custody and they need, you know, nans to know where they are or, you know, partners to know, then we can make them calls for them and let, you know, the family know where they are and, you know, follow that. Look, we've had people with pets stuck in the bloody house. We've had people, you know, going, I've got to pick up the kids in a few hours. You know what I mean? So it's, it's real careful because sometimes, as we know, people don't know when they're going to get locked up or remanded. So that's why we're there to assist as much as what we can within this space. And I imagine that some of those, some of those things... Can you hear me, Leanne? Sorry. Yes. Are you there? Yeah, I imagine that some of those... Um, the role of, of, the, of the worker would also be to try and facilitate picking up the kids, perhaps? Yeah, or even reaching out to family, getting hold of family. Um, sometimes we get people stuck where they can't remember, oh, look, I can't remember my phone number without going into it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and if they don't have their phone, then they can't access the numbers that they need to. So it's a bit of liaising with police to say, look, we need this number out of their phone, but if the number's not in there, then that's where we use our community contacts to be able to reach out and let family know. So, you know, we can liaise that way as well. And do whatever we need to do in order to reduce someone's anxiety and their stress whilst they're locked up. This is such a. It's, look, we're in a brutal system here. It is colonisation. I mean, I know. Look, that what I'm about to say really quickly. It's not about. I know it's not in Victoria, but I wanted to. I interviewed Latoya Rule um, last week about Wayne Feller Morrison's death in custody. Can you imagine, Leanne, if if there had been a notification service in place in Adelaide, perhaps he wouldn't have died. Yeah, and that's, that's the really, really sad thing. Um, you know, we, we've got so many deaths in community and, you know, just as you were saying around that interview that we've done, we were talking about raising, you know, lowering the age, um, you know, for the age pension and we're talking about, you know, people dying way, way too young in community already, let alone, you know, being sent into jail and actually dying within jail, knowing that, or a police station knowing that a service like this could actually save that person. It's, it's sad. It's traumatic. And, you know, for every one of these families that have been through this experience, it is not something they want or anyone wants for any other family to have to go through. Leanne, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Keep up the good work. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Good on you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. People have just tuned in. This is the Doing Time Show, 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And you just heard an interview with Leanne Carter, who is from the Aboriginal um, Fitzroy Aboriginal Legal Service, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, sorry. And we were speaking about the, the custody notification service and looking in particular at Auntie Tanya Day. And next up on the show, we're going to be speaking with David Glantz, who is from the Refugee Action Collective. And as I was saying at the beginning of the show, it really is very, very difficult to balance out the right to protest as opposed to um, a pandemic. But this really is... The latest is a most outrageous move by the Victorian police because picnics are indeed allowed. And just a quote from the media release from the Refugee Action Collective... In an outrageous move, Victoria Police have banned the right to picnic for a political purpose at the last minute. 
And we're going to be speaking with David shortly about that. And he goes on to say, this comes as the whole of Bastu compound in Mitre enters lockdown after having been exposed to COVID-19 for four days by a Serco guard and who tested positive for the coronavirus. Multiple warnings about the high risk of transmission in detention centres have been ignored by the federal coalition government. And social distancing is impossible in detention. There have been numerous COVID protocol breaches and the vaccination rollout for refugees was delayed for far too long. Many in detention have medical conditions making them vulnerable to COVID-19. Now, I have actually read that out just to show listeners that there have been breaches in protocol in detention, in particular in Broadmeadows with the guards, and yet a small group of people from the Refugee Action Collective are not allowed to picnic, and picnics are actually allowed at the moment under the health orders. David, thank you and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again. Okay, so shall we continue this discussion then? Are you able to just tell us what happened? Yeah, well, we thought that given that picnics are now allowed under the health provisions, that we would encourage our supporters to picnic together, socially distanced, in in groups, in small groups, as as, uh, the health provisions dictate. We thought we would encourage people to come together on Saturday afternoon and picnic outside the Park Hotel, which is a prison in which 46 Medivac refugees are currently being held in Carlton. And the initial indications from the police were basically, yeah, they'd turn a blind eye. They knew that that a picnic is not a problem. And then at the last minute, they came back with apparently legal advice that, in their terms, it is not possible to protest in Melbourne at the moment. So they weren't just talking about us. They were saying generally, in writing, there is no right to protest because protest is not one of the reasons we're allowed to leave the house. Even if the protest takes the form of people sitting on picnic blankets with perhaps a few placards around them uh, on the grass in, in Lincoln Square. Now, this is absolutely outrageous. I'm just been reading this afternoon about the 10,000 people who will be allowed to be at the Melbourne Cup. And the Labor government has been criticised and saying, you can't have a guest, you can't have anybody visit your house, but you can have 10,000 people partying down at Flemington. And, of course, the minister came back, Foley, the health minister, came back and said, but it's so much safer outdoors than indoors. Well, what could be safer than a picnic on the grass Maximum five people from two households double vaccinated. And I think it really shows that the response of this state government over the last 18 months or so of the pandemic has been a police response, not a health response. Because I said to the police officer who contacted me, tell me what the difference is between sitting on a picnic blanket and being legal and sitting on a picnic blanket and being illegal because you're holding up a placard. And, of course, there is no health difference. There's no scientific difference. It's purely a matter of politics. And protest and dissent and democracy is seen as absolutely at the bottom of the pile of priorities for this government. Now, thankfully, a number of our supporters just went ahead and picnicked um, at Lincoln Square, not as part of an organised um, process, but just went there with their nearest and dearest and uh, something to eat and sat on the grass. So a number of people did picnic on Saturday and Sunday. So the refugees inside the Park Hotel did see supporters on the grass. But the police made it very clear that if we encourage people to all turn up and picnic at the same time, that they would move in and potentially fine us all $5,000. And in fact, I'm told there were 35 police on duty outside the Park Hotel on Saturday lunchtime, just in case someone had a sandwich and held a placard at the same time. So, this all sounds very confusing to me. It it sounds quite strange because picnics are allowed. 
So why did the Refugee Action Collective even have a need to contact the police if the picnic was legal? I mean, what, what is wrong with it? What was wrong with actually going to have a picnic? Does it matter what you had in your hand? Why did it have to be that the protest would have to be formally run by the police? Well, we didn't approach the police. The police uh, approached us oh. because, um, as you may be aware, and I'm sure many listeners are, the police actively monitor social media. And so I if see. we quietly, by word of mouth, organise people to turn up, then probably the police wouldn't have known and the event uh. would have went ahead. But we felt, what's wrong with asking people to join a picnic? Yeah. Um, providing, you know, they follow all the rules, socially distant, a maximum of five people from two households, etc., etc. There are thousands and thousands of picnics taking place across Melbourne every weekend. I've been out every weekend for the last three weeks since some of the limits have lifted, and wherever I've gone, there have been people picnicking, and usually less less COVID-safe than the picnic that RAC would have encouraged. But the police monitor Facebook, the moment they see that we're organising something, we get a phone call. And as I say, the initial tone was quite sort of, OK, well, we've got bigger fish to fry. Have your picnic. And then they did a 180 and came back and said, legal advice, protest is not allowed. Quote, unquote. So it doesn't matter what you're protesting and it doesn't matter how safely you're protesting. Apparently you can't do that, but you can go and get pissed at Flemington on Cup Day. It's very, very sad, given that everybody was vaccinated and you would be wearing... Well, you can't wear masks when you're eating, but you would have had your masks there. Absolutely. RAC has taken the pandemic very seriously. And at every point, when we've encouraged our supporters out onto the streets, uh, in the last 18 months, we've done it with masks, we've done it with QR codes, we've done it with um, COVID marshals, we've with sanitizer stations. We've done all those things because we know that the pandemic is very serious, but we also know that it's 20 times safer to be outdoors than indoors because the chief health officer keeps on telling us that, and that if you are socially distanced and wearing a mask, there is effectively zero chance of transmitting the virus. So we've always been COVID safe in everything we've done, but what we've never accepted is the argument that our protest should wait till after the pandemic. Sometimes people say that. Can't you just wait until it's safe? Well, the government's racist uh, torture of refugees has not stopped throughout the pandemic. In fact, you could argue in some ways it's got worse because, as you quoted from our media release, refugees, whether they're in the Park Hotel prison or in the Mitre Detention Centre up in Broadmeadows, they can't socially distance. They are already suffering very often from uh, mental health, mental distress issues. And then they're locked up in places where they've got a ex- very good chance of getting coronavirus. And these are men. They're mostly men. They're some women. And these are refugees who already suffer health problems, both physical and mental. So the, the government torture has never stopped during the pandemic. The suffering of the refugees has never stopped. The resistance put up by the refugees themselves has never stopped. So why the hell should the refugee movement stop because of a pandemic? There's a job to do fighting for freedom, and we're not going to stop doing that job. But we'll always do it COVID safe, unless the police fine us $5,000 each. And that was the risk that we ran on Saturday. And yet people did have the picnic and they weren't fined. And all because they didn't have placards? Yep, and that's because this is not about health. This is about politics. Uh, and at every step of the way, uh, gatherings, which potentially... And when they talk about public gatherings, that could be a bunch of mates in a park kicking a footy around or throwing a frisbee or having a big picnic. But actually, public gatherings also covers off um, protests and pickets and vigils and all, and all the rest of it. And at every step of the way... That has been the lowest priority for the chief health officer, the lowest priority for the state government. And we're seeing that. There's going to be thousands of people at the Sydney Meyer Bowl in, what, 
less than three weeks' time That's for right. a concert. There's going to be 10,000 people at Flemington, and we all know people are going to be having a good time. They're going to be partying. They're going to be drinking. Do we really think that's going to be a COVID-safe event? But if you mm, think no. it's a blanket, that's a risk, not for health. That's just an excuse. It's actually a risk politically. And, I, and the government has essentially made it almost impossible to protest safely and legally. RAC, we've always, Refuge Action Collective, we've, we've, we've done our best within the circumstances to keep protest alive. But is it any surprise that in the end, the only protests people see are the ones which are completely out of control, run by people who don't believe in vaccinations? Yes. Because they, they've got the critical mass. I think the tragedy is if unions and organisations of the left had stood their ground the way um, uh, Indigenous leadership and other people stood their ground around Black Lives Matter last year and around Invasion Day in January this year, if we'd stood our ground, we could have defended the right safely protest, COVID safely protest, and we could have retained more of our democratic rights. And I'm sure many listeners are worried, like I am, that when we finally are over this pandemic, and I'm not sure when that's going to be because... I think COVID is going to be with us for a long, long time to come. How many of the undemocratic measures which have been introduced in the last 18 months are going to stay in place? How many of our rights which we've lost are going to be reinstated? And that's why I think it's so important that we do take every opportunity to COVID safely protest whenever, whenever we can. Because at the end of the day, our right to protest is one that has to be established on the ground not just on a piece of paper. Absolutely. And, and in fact, one of the things that I'm thinking now is that, you know, with the Melbourne Cup, you, you know, you have people drinking and rolling around on the ground and kissing each other. They, I mean, that, that's going to happen this year because, you know, when you're drinking and having a good time, you're not going to be worrying about social distance, are you? No, we're not. So the government's being hypocritical. Yes, they will say... Everybody will go in a certain entrance. Everybody will have to be double vaccinated. But I would say pretty much all supporters of refugees are double vaccinated or on the way to being double vaccinated. We're quite capable of running events which are socially distanced, which are COVID safe, which have COVID marshals, which have QR codes. Actually, we're more responsible, I would say, than the, the people running the Melbourne Cup. We're more likely to have supporters turn up who are sober and serious about the cause that they're, they're prote protesting about. Actually, if the government was interested in health, they wouldn't be prioritising the Melbourne Cup. They would be prioritising the right to come out on, the, out on the streets and rally and protest in a COVID-safe way. Not in an anti-vaxxer way, not in a coughing in people's face way, but in a COVID-safe way with masks and social distancing. And I think it's crucial. It's not just the refugee movement. It's the climate movement. Global, global warming hasn't stopped because of the pandemic. The challenge to get uh, global warming under control hasn't stopped, but our right to go out and protest for our planet has been curtailed. And I think we need to retake back that right. Indeed we do, and we need to actually draw upon the Victorian charter of human rights and, and actually use that as a testing ground to see whether in fact you know these rights have, have legally been violated I, I would encourage people to access all the legal avenues to challenge but at the end of the day the right to protest has only ever been won by people going out and protesting and so Refugee Action Collective has done its bit uh, but we're a, a small organisation but we have had times, even during the pandemic, where we have had hundreds, maybe up to a 1,000 people out rallying safety for refugees. I think, really, I'd throw down the challenge to everybody who's in a progressive organisation, everybody in a union. It's about time we took our streets back. There are so many issues. There are, there's going to be at least $90 billion uh, wasted on nuclear-powered submarines that make us all... Uh, let less safe. Um, the Liberals and the Nationals are playing games about empty gestures around climate change, and most importantly, from a RAC point of view, 
we have 46 men being driven into a state of despair and distraction in the Park Hotel in Carlton, who should be and must be out on the streets and in the communities, living safely and freely, freely amongst us. So we're not going to stop protesting until the, the injustice is over. Um, and we will keep protesting until, and, until, until every refugee is free, whether they're uh, in onshore detention or offshore detention in Nauru, or those who are left in Papua New Guinea until they're brought to Australia, given permanent rights, and given the help they need to rebuild their lives after, in many cases, eight years or more of being held as innocent prisoners of the Australian government. And in fact, you know, Australia should be, should be helping the, the Afg Afghanistans escape from the Taliban and bring them here. Absolutely. Uh, the Refugee Action Collective, along with many other organisations, are saying um, there should be a special intake of at least 20,000 uh, Afghan refuge refugees. That should be on top of any other existing refugee intake. We're also saying that Afghan refugees already in this country who are on temporary protection visas, bridging visas, so-called safe haven visas, none of which give people any security um, in, in their lives and in many cases stop them either from working or having access to, uh, to study. All of those Afghan refugees, and all refugees, but all Afghan refugees who are already here should be granted permanency. And we're also drawing attention to the thousands of Afghan refugees and others who are marooned in Indonesia, who made it to Indonesia, have then been told by the Australian government, initially under Tony Abbott, that they will never, ever come from Indonesia to Australia, have no right to work in Indonesia, are living on charity handouts, um, and cannot go back to the countries from, from which they fled. All of those people should be brought to Australia as well. And if you added up all the people I've mentioned, it would be much less than a Melbourne Cup crowd. Absolutely. So just to just to summarise, then, so in so basically in two separate phone calls, police had assured refugee supporters that they could have a picnic in Lincoln Square opposite the Park Hotel, and this David is where forty six Medivac refugees are currently being held after eight years in detention. And then is it true then that police told RAC they could picnic so long as picnic groups were well separated and then following COVID-19 rules? And then what happened? Literally... They the, said yes at first. Lit literally, I received a text message. Um, and the text message, I'll read it to you. Yes. Very short. Hi, yes. David. Vic Police has received legal advice in relation to all protest activity. You cannot come together for a common purpose outside the current reasons to leave home. You simply cannot protest at this time. Thanks, name of officer. That, so that, that is just deplorable. It's deplorable, David, particularly because it was, it, it was a picnic. It was yeah. a picnic. And actually, in the media conference um, that Daniel Andrews organised, um, I say a couple of weeks ago now, they said that um, you, you could picnic. Yes, and, and the that was age... health advice. The age, for instance, um, carried a story about a comedian, I think it was, who, because he couldn't, I think it was him, he, he couldn't do live performance anywhere else, actually organised to perform to people having a picnic. And, yeah, uh, that, was, that was his gig. And so it's OK to have a picnic, which turns into a theatrical performance, it's not okay to have a picnic if you put a placard in front of your picnic blanket saying "Free the refugees," and that is if you say it out, if you say you're going to do it. So refugee supporters were there this weekend on Saturday and Sunday, but they did it quietly, and that's fine at one level because the refugees in the Park Hotel could look down and see supporters. But why should we be ashamed? Why should we have to hide the fact that we want to campaign? for refugee rights. The only reason right now is if the police see a call out on Facebook, they will threaten you with fines and arrests. Doesn't exactly. matter how COVID safe you are. 
And that, I think, goes is, you know, I think Brett Sutton, the chief health officer, and I think the Premier, Dan Andrews, should hang their heads in shame that they are prepared to prioritise activities that lead to profit, like personal trainers taking groups of people in puffing and panting around the local park. They're OK with a gig at the, um, the uh, Sydney Myers Bowl. They're OK with 10,000 people frocking up and getting pissed down at Flemington, but they are never OK with protest. And I think that says something about the state of affairs in Victoria, and that's why, at the end of the day, we have to take back the right to protest. It's so hypocritical. You know, they say prioritisation to outdoor activity because it's safer indoor, you know, safer than indoors, and then no-one to protest for groups who do everything possible to abide by COVID-19 safety measures. Yes, it's, it's entirely hypocritical. It's a political decision based on using the police as a battering ram. I mean, at one level, are we surprised? We're still governed by a curfew. The Chief Health Officer, the first time it was imposed, said the curfew had no health benefits. The former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, the one who stepped down recently, Barilaro, he admitted um, that curfews had no health benefits because when asked why wasn't it being imposed in country New South Wales while it was being imposed in Sydney, he said, well, curfews don't work. But we have curfews. Why do we have curfews? Because it's part of controlling us and giving the police, putting police in the driving seat in in this state. Uh, It even worries me. I mean, we discussed earlier, did we contact the police? No, we didn't. They contacted us. A few years ago, if you were holding a rally, the police would contact you and just say, what's your route? Because we'll make sure that the traffic is safe. Yeah. Now yeah. they want to start pinning you down. Who's going to be there? How many people are going to be there? Who's speaking? What do you do? It's, it's a real um, tightening of control over the right of public dissent. And I'm really worried this will live on uh, long after the formal end of the pandemic, unless we get back out onto the streets. Well, that's not going to happen. We're not going to allow that to happen, David. No, that's not going to happen. Right. David, thank you so much for coming onto the program. We've got about a minute left. Well, all I'd say to people is, if you're free at six o'clock this evening, six thirty this evening, RAC has a forum um, about the plight of people on temporary protection visas. It's online. It's on Zoom. Go to our Facebook page, Refugee Action Collective Victoria. Find the details. Join us at 6.30. We've got some excellent speakers at a problem that is from public debate. Well, what was that last bit? It affects lots of people, but not not, not many people know about it. But join us tonight. Absolutely. It's very important. Look up, Google the RAC website and everything will be there, isn't it? It will be. David, thank you very much for your comprehensive, um, you know, perspective on all this and facts. Uh, it's a pleasure, and, and thanks for uh, having me back to talk about the issues. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Health Before Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. And it's, it's the end of another show. Tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And it's goodbye from Marissa. Bye. Stay safe.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.